Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started uh, this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the privilege to come together this evening to study your word, to focus on eternal truths that are never changing, to be reminded of your faithfulness, to be reminded of your grace, and to be reminded of our need to be dependent upon you. Father, this time we continue to pray for Israel, for strength for that nation, pray for our president, pray for those who advise him, pray that you would give them wisdom, the right information they need, as they not only conduct this ongoing war against terrorism, but also as they uh, make decisions relative to uh, supporting the nation Israel. Father, we know that as we see these things on the horizon, that you are working out your eventual purposes in history and the eventual, uh, which will lead eventually to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ for us in the air, and we look forward to that. And Father, we pray that as we study your word today, we can be encouraged by the way you have always worked in the lives of believers throughout history and that you continue to work according to these same principles today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter 35. We're wrapping up our study of Jacob, coming to an end of the section, the Toledot of Isaac. Even though through this whole Toledot the focus has been on Jacob, it is the Toledot or the generation of Isaac. Literally, it should have been translated, this is what happened to the descendants of Isaac. And that ends at the end of this chapter in 35 verse 29. We come to a conclusion of this section. And then next time, chapter 36 begins with, this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. And if you read ahead, I know that that will bless your Heart, you will not find a single promise there. I'm struggling to figure out, okay, what's the doctrine here? Why is this here? So uh, you'll be, want to be here next time because we need to answer that question. And that's a, one of the genealogies in the Scripture that we have to figure out. Why is this really here? It's all about Esau, and that's all it is is one long genealogy. But we're not there yet. We're in chapter 35, so let's get a little review. First of all, when Jacob fled the land, he was met with a theophany of God at Bethel. There Jacob made a vow to God, and that's in Genesis 28:20. Remember, he's fleeing for his life. He's scared to death that Esau will kill him. Esau is bringing threat, breathing threats of murder because Jacob has tricked him out of both the blessing and the inheritance. And as he's leaving the land, this is, remember, the land that God promised to the descendants of Abraham and Isaac. As Jacob is leaving the land, God appeared to him at Bethel. And at Bethel, God promised that he would protect him and watch over him wherever he went outside the land and that God would bring him back to the land. And so this is the promise that uh, that Jacob had to rely upon while he's out of the land. This is the focus for Jacob in that time period when there's little scripture, little of a Bible, no canon, this is the promise that Jacob has as part of the whole package of Abrahamic covenant packages. And so Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, literally then Yahweh shall be my God. And so this is the vow that he makes, a vow to worship God. Now, in this next slide, 
we have a, just a, a map of the <clears throat> central area of the promised land so we can orient ourselves. Bethel is located uh, just to the uh, north of Jerusalem up here in this area on the map labeled the Benjamin Mountains. It's south of Shechem. Shechem is the round black dot here. And Bethel and Ai are about halfway between Jerusalem and Shechem. So he's at Bethel. He left there, pursued the track north. Let me see. Pursued the track north to Padan Aram. And then when he came back, he came down the Transjordan area. That means the area across the Jordan. Came down near the uh, Jabbok River. And there he met the Lord at Peniel. He came down and established a dwelling place at Sukkoth and then eventually came across to Shechem. That's the, that gives you an idea of the progression here geographically because there's several places that are mentioned as we go through chapter 35. So that orients you to the area. Now, if you're, if you want to fit this into those maps you're watching on the evening news, this little bump right over here is where the modern city of Haifa is located. And then this blue circle here is the Sea of Galilee or Lake Kinnereth and Tiberias is located right there on the coast. And that's where we were just over a month ago. And of course, they've been dropping rockets into Tiberias as well as into Nazareth. So that gives you a little orientation. We're in the central highlands. The hill country of Ephraim is the um, geographical designation of the area where most of the events in this chapter take place. So it was there that God established, or God promised Jacob that he would bring him back to the land, and it was there that uh, that Jacob made a vow. And in verse 22, he concluded by saying, This stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. That's the meaning of the word Beth-el. That's why I pronounce it that way. Beth is the Hebrew word for house, bait. It's the second letter in the alphabet. Bait-el. El is the generic word for God. It means house of God. And he made a vow, and he said that all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. This is a tithe. That's what tithe means. It means a tenth, literally. It's funny. People today don't know the English language well enough to understand that. And this was a one-shot tithe. I'm not going to get distracted and teach on the subject of tithing tonight, but there are, in a nutshell, two types of giving in the Scripture. There is mandatory giving, and there is free will giving. And mandatory giving in the Mosaic Law covered three different tithes. Two were taken every year. One was taken every third year. The two that were taken every year were, first of all, for the support of the priests and Levites who functioned as the bureaucracy of the theocracy. As a theocratic government, God was the executive branch, and the administrators were the priests and the Levites. So 10% went to support them. That would be comparable to income tax today. Then there was a second tithe taken every year that was a that was supposed to be used for a national celebration. They just had a huge party, and it was tied to the GNP. So 10% every year went to the uh, national government to throw a big party. See, God is very concrete in the Old Testament with how he, how he measured things and how he measured spirituality. He told the Jews that if you're obedient, I will prosper you, I will bless you, there will be uh, abundant crops in the fields, and, and your enemies will all be destroyed, there will be plenty of rain, and uh, there will be more than a, an abundance of everything. But if you disobey me, then there won't be any rain, then you, your crops won't grow, everything will dry up, there will be droughts and droughts, and there won't be any, uh, any rain and produce, and you won't make any money. And so he tied, as a barometer, he tied this second tithe to what we would call the GNP. Ten percent of what they made every year went into the government and they threw a party. So if one year you had a party and everybody ate uh, Chateaubriand and they had uh, beluga caviar and uh, they had uh, champagne and single malt scotch and they'd have a really good party. The next, you know, ten years later you come along, now you have a party and Everybody's going down to Hart's Fried Chicken to get chicken, and 
and they're, they're getting Lone Star beer because they can't get anything better, then you know that your GNP just wasn't what it was 10 years ago. So you'd be forced to ask the question, what's happened? Why aren't we as, as productive as we were 10 years ago? And so God had a very concrete way of measuring their uh, spirituality. So that was the two tithes. Then there was a third tithe that was taken up every third year, and that third tithe was for the purpose of supporting the widows and the orphans. It was a small safety net to take care of those who didn't have anyone else to take care of them. And that was under the Mosaic Law. That was required giving. That was comparable to what we have today as taxation. But even under the Mosaic Law, you had free will offerings. And free will offerings were given. They weren't mandatory. They were given an expression of gratitude toward God, and it could be any amount. It was up to the giver how much he gave and if he gave. Now, this is what you had prior to the Mosaic Law was only free will giving. Abraham gave a tithe after his victory over the four kings, and he gave a tithe of what he had to Melchizedek in the New Testament. You have the same two categories. You have mandatory giving, free will giving. Mandatory giving is called taxation by the state. And Jesus said, render under Caesar that which is Caesar's. And then you have free will giving, which is to the local church as an expression of grace. So you always have this, this same, these same categories of giving all the way through Scripture. And so this is a free will offering. There's no pressure put on Jacob at this point. Uh, 10% was sort of a standard amount that people uh, gave. And so he makes this vow that if God will take care of me whenever it is that I return, however much I have, and see, it's easy to make this vow for him right now because he doesn't have anything but the clothes on his back. So he says, whatever God gives me, I'll give 10% back to him. Now, part of the problem, part of his delay that we'll see coming back to Bethel, I think, is because he's very wealthy. And he's got a vow to fulfill, and he really doesn't want to fulfill that vow because 10% now is a tremendous amount, and he had to fulfill that vow. So when Jacob fled the land, he was met with the theophany of God, and there Jacob made a vow to set up a a house of God, a place to worship God, and he would give 10% of whatever God provided for him to the Lord. Then when he was in Padan Aran, after he had married Leah and then Rachel, and after he had had all but one of his children, the Lord appeared to him and commanded him to return to his land. And that, of course, implied a fulfillment of the vow. And we studied this in Genesis 31, verse 3, and Genesis 31, 13. Genesis 31, 3, the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. And then when Jacob explained to uh, Leah and Rachel what God had said to him when he appeared to him in verse 3, he expanded it. So perhaps verse 3 doesn't record everything that God said. And in verse 13, as Jacob is repeating this to Rachel and Leah, he says that God said, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar, and where you made a vow to me. So he's being reminded of this vow. Now arise, get out of this land, and return to the land of your family. So there is implicit in this reminder of the Lord that you made a vow, and now it's going to be time for you to fulfill that vow. And vows were taken very seriously in the, in the Old Testament under the Mosaic Law. Now, Jacob returned to the land in stages. First of all, we saw that he came down uh, south very rapidly, and Laban finally caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead across across the Jordan, and there they entered into a covenant not to uh, bother each other anymore. Then, as Jacob got away from Laban, God appeared to him at a place he called Peniel for, because it was there that he met God face to face. This is described in chapter 32. And at that place, God gives him a new name. Now, that's very important to understand what's happening there because this is the first time he has had this kind of encounter with God in the land since Bethel. On Bethel, God reiterated the Abrahamic covenant to him as he left 
And at Peniel, God reiterated and confirmed the Abrahamic covenant with him as he came back into the land. And it was at that point that God gave him a new name. There was that whole adventure where he wrestled with the angel of the Lord all night. And then God, the angel of the Lord struck him on the hip and he was rendered lame. And God gave him a new name, Israel, one who wrestled with God. And it was to indicate that throughout his life there had been this spiritual wrestling going on, but he had finally prevailed. And from that point on, we no longer see Jacob the chiseler, Jacob the heel grabber, but we see a different Jacob. That doesn't mean he's sinless, but he is no, he, there's a change in his character. He has, uh, made some, uh, has grown spiritually and he has focused more on the Lord, but we see that he has problems even there. He's reunited and reconciled with Esau in chapter 33. But he doesn't fulfill the mandate. He doesn't go all the way home. He stops and he sets up a home in Sukkoth. And at the end of chapter, chapter 33, we're told that, and 33:17, and Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth, built himself a house, and made booths. That'd be pole barns if you're a Texan. Made booths for his livestock. And therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. And he lived there for three, four, five years. The text isn't clear, but the period from his return, from the time that he has the encounter with, with Esau, uh, or with God, rather, at Peniel, to the events in chapter 35 are approximately ten years. So he's in Sukkoth long enough for Dinah to at least reach marriageable age. It could be seven or eight years, but the whole time period here is about ten years. And then last time we studied the incident with, with Dinah. Now while he was, uh, after he was in Sukkoth for five or six years, he then moved again. He moves to, let me back up to the map again, he moves across the Jordan to Shechem which, of course, at this time is just a small village. Shechem is the son of Hamor. This is a Canaanite city comprised of, of uh, Hivites, and Shechem is named after the son of, uh, of uh, the most prominent individual there, who's Hamor, and Shechem is the prince of this area. And he then rapes Dinah, and then we studied the whole incident last time where the Dinah's brothers get revenge on the uh, inhabitants of, of Shechem and have all the men get circumcised in a ploy thinking that uh, now they can uh, Shechem can intermarry with their family. And then while they're in pain after their uh, <clears throat> anesthetized uh, surgery, they go in and kill all the men and they uh, plunder the village and take all of their goods. And the end of which Jacob, who has been uh, conspicuously silent through this whole Affair indicating that what's going on in his life spiritually isn't anything good. Uh, even though he had erected an altar when he first came to Shechem, and he called it El Elohe Israel, God, uh, the altar for the God of Israel, there doesn't seem to be any spiritual emphasis in his life. He's becoming rather complacent. And this is typical of many believers once they go through a period of spiritual growth and advance and they have a measure of prosperity and they have a measure of peace and tranquility in their life. It's real easy to start getting relaxed about doctrine. And, and well, that's all important, but it's uh, not as important as it used to be. Now that everything's going well, I can start spending a lot of my time doing other things in life. And before long, that, that, that drive to know God, to know the Word of God, to apply doctrine and to grow spiritually begins to diminish. I see this a lot. And we're a congregation in age where this is a challenge, I think, to many, many people in this congregation. I think as you go through life, if you think back on your own life, you will uh, see certain, uh, certain parallels to this. I remember in my own life as I was a young believer, especially coming out of college, in, in college and coming out of college, I was driven with a lot of questions like most young people are. You're in high school, college, you want to know, well, is the Bible true? What's my purpose in life? What does God want me to do? Is there a God? 
all these kinds of questions, and you're, you're driven by these sorts of questions as a young person trying to become your own person, coming out from under uh, the authority of your parents. And so for much of the early years that I was in my 20s and 30s, I was driven and motivated in my Christian life with a desire to know the Word. I need to know more. I have all these questions. And then when I got into my late 30s, early 40s, I began to notice that that uh, that didn't drive me quite as much. Not that I knew everything, but the, the big questions, the burning questions were, were truly resolved in my own life and my own experience, and I wasn't so concerned with finding out, is this right? What's right? What's wrong? How do I know this is true? How do I know what God really wants me to do? And I began to realize that my motivation for studying the Word began to shift. And, and this is true. As you grow up, just in, think of in your, your own life apart from your spiritual life, that as you go through different stages in life, different things drive you. When you're in your 20s, you're trying to get established, get uh, established in your job, get educated, uh, find a spouse, start a family. As you go through your 30s, you're raising that family, but the specter of their adolescence and then paying for their college years begins to loom hot and heavy on the horizon. And then as you go into your 40s, you might go through some uh, midlife crisis. Your kids are in rebellion. Uh, you start going through uh, certain changes as your hairline recedes and your waist expands. And as you go into your 50s, other things begin to fail and other problems begin to develop and you don't have the energy you had. And you go on into, and, and with, and now your kids are grown and you've got grandkids and, you know, things change. Now you gotta take care of your parents because they can't do anything anymore and they're, uh, having health problems and everything else. So as we go through life, there's different, Different things drive us and concern us and uh, cause us to focus on different things. So when you get to uh, sort of that adolescent stage in your spiritual life, all of a sudden you're not driven by this hunger to know truth as much anymore. But what you need at this point is to be reminded of the truths that you already know because it's real easy to forget these things. That's the... The, the trend of living in the fallen world is if we take our focus off the Lord, like, like Peter did when he was walking on the water, you immediately begin to sink. And it's easy to become complacent. Next thing you know, you're going, you're still going to Bible class two or three times a week, but you're not driven to hang on to those promises of God like you did at other times in your life. And it's easy to become somewhat complacent, become more concerned about the day-to-day things of life, but there's still the trappings of doctrine in your life and of Christianity. And this is what, wait a minute, let me find the verse. This is what Paul warns Timothy about having a form of godliness but denying its power and from such people turn away. And this is a threat that comes to every one of us as we go through spiritual adolescence because the motivation that drives a child and an infant and a young believer is different from that which motivates an adolescent or a mature believer. And I've seen so many people over the years that as they get older... They quit serving the Lord. Well, you know, it was important to be involved with church when I had kids because I wanted to set a good example for those kids. and I want to show them what was important, and I had to teach them, and I had to train them. But now they're grown, and they're out of the house, and I've got grandkids, and I took early retirement, and I've got an RV, and, and uh, I can move out to the hill country. I talked to a friend of mine not long ago who's pastor of a church up in the hill country where he has mostly retired folks. And the mean age in that congregation is somewhere in the late 50s. And my first church was like that. And you get this attitude that people have that, oh, well, I did all that when I was younger. I don't need to do it anymore. Now I can take vacations and go on cruises and travel more, and it's all about me. Well, it it never is all about you. It's about serving the Lord. And for a maturing believer... As you go through adolescence, you have to make this shift in your motivation that you're, motiv- that you're driven now not so much by a desire to know more about God and to learn more doctrine, 
but you're driven more and more by a desire to serve him and a desire to apply the doctrine that you've learned. And so there's this subtle shift that takes place in that maturation process. And what happens is a lot of people fall away at that point. They don't make the shift they, because their, their motivation as a young believer was to get questions answered and to know more. And once they had their questions answered and they knew what they thought was enough, they got satisfied and complacent, and they failed to let their motivation shift to serving the Lord. And one of the things that I've loved to see over the years is when people who get into their retirement years realize that now they're going to have a lot more time on their hands and they've got financial resources that are the result of their years of labor and they can serve the Lord in ways they never thought about before. And I've seen people at times go retire from a military career, retire from some other career, go to seminary, go on the mission field. They retire. They get more involved in the local church. They do different things. They look for ways where they can serve and apply the word. But what happens with Jacob is he becomes complacent. And the next thing you knew, he is in serious trouble. He has compromised with the culture of the land. He has begun to assimilate with the thinking of the Canaanites. His children are acting just like the pagans in the land. There's no distinction. And he has uh, forgotten all about his vow to God at Bethel. He is not paying attention to his spiritual life. His moral courage has evaporated. He won't stand up for his daughter. He isn't a leader in the family anymore. And he reaches this horrible position that after his sons have basically annihilated Shechem, he realizes that his reputation has been destroyed in the land. And that's his statement in verse 30. After uh, Simeon and Levi had wiped out uh, the Shechemites and the other sons had plundered them, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, in other words, there's the twelve of you and your wives and a few servants and some others that have come along, our, our little clan is very small compared to their numbers. They will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. What's he doing? He is pressing the panic button. He is all concerned about how poor everything is and poor me, and he's whining and complaining, and it's all their fault. But something happens between the end of chapter 34 and the events in chapter 35, and that is that God once again appears to Jacob. Now, God isn't going to appear to you and grab you by the collar and start shaking some sense into you. This is a different dispensation. He's going to do it through the, through the Word of God and through the Holy Spirit and through divine discipline. And that's exactly what's been going on in, in Jacob's life. God gives us time to fail. Now, before we go on, I want to spend a few more times talking about this issue of complacency. And I want you to hold your place in Genesis 32, and let's just turn over to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. is a call to the Jews to make sure they remember God during the times of prosperity. Tests of adversity are tough. We've all gone through those. There's not anybody in this room that hasn't had some serious adversity in their life. And when we go through adversity, we just cling to the grace of God and the promises of God. And we all know what that's like. But the hard tests are the tests of prosperity. And I've had people tell me that, that it's one thing to go through adversity because every day you want to listen to a tape, every day you need to be reminded of God's promises, every day you need to claim God's promises. But once everything is going great, once you start going through tests of financial prosperity, it, there's, it, that, all that comes with another load of distractions, and it's easy to say, well, I'll listen to that tape tomorrow. Everything's going okay right now. And this is what God warns about in Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning in verse 11. He says, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today. Now, just as a reminder, 
One of the key ideas in the book of Deuteronomy is love. Now, that's something most people don't think of when they think of Deuteronomy. They think of all the commandments, do this, do that. But again and again and again, you have a repetition of this mandate to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus summarized the law, he was just quoting from Deuteronomy. So the book is really about what you do to love God. And the message of Deuteronomy is the same message that Jesus gave to his disciples in John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love for God is not exemplified by how you feel about God, about sentiment toward God, about singing hymns about how much we love God. The barometer in Scripture in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is that love for God is measured by the consistency of our obedience to him. So the... Jews were told, don't forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments. So you can go to Bible class all day long, but if you're not applying doctrine, you're forgetting God. That's how it's wrapped together. Verse 12, lest, he says, don't forget the Lord your God, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, that's when your stock portfolio grows and your retirement plan increases, and your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up, when you're just excited about how great everything's going, And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness. And so this whole rehearsal of everything that God did for them in the past, that you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained this wealth. See, that's the, that's the threat, is we start thinking that we're the ones who are responsible for our prosperity and how well things are going. And so we become complacent, and then things begin to fall apart, and God begins to uh, discipline us. And God's discipline takes three different stages. The first stage is Galatians 6-7, we reap what we sow. This is the beginning of discipline. It's just warning discipline. We start realizing the consequences of our own bad decisions. And the consequences of our own bad decisions don't come along always in an instantaneous manner. Sometimes we have five or ten years before our bad decisions come back to start bothering us. So God gives enough time go by to give us an opportunity to recover on our own, and other times he gives us enough time to start realizing the consequences of our own foolish decisions. When that doesn't work, then God begins to give us intensive discipline. This is the principle in Hebrews 12:6. for whom the Lord loves, he chastens. This is a more active divine discipline. It is more intense than just the uh, harmful negative consequences of our own bad decisions. And this God does because he is focused on building the character of Jesus Christ in us. And then if we still don't listen, there's the sin unto death. So after the events of chapter 34, Jacob is in a position where there's a little teachability, a little humility, and we have what we often refer to as a teachable moment. And he realizes that his very life is being threatened because of the actions of his children, who obviously have rebelled against God, and they're acting just like all the other pagans. But because of what they've done, they're all insecure. They're all being threatened. They could be attacked and wiped out by any of these Canaanites at any moment. So he is ready to listen to God. And so in Genesis 35.1, God has waited for the right moment. And he appears to Jacob and says, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Now, you see, you can't understand Genesis 35.1 if you don't put it in the context of what God said to him in Genesis 33 and what happened all the way back into Genesis chapter 28. And all of these things fit together. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau 
your brother. So it's not just any God. It's not just the God of your imagination. It's not just the God of uh, that you want to worship. It is the God who had a historical appearance to you at a particular place and a particular time. Now, God's command involved four elements. First of all, arise, that is, get up and quit. Quit whining and quit focusing on your own problems and your own failures. Second, go up to Bethel. You have to finish what you started. You've been dragging your feet on your way back to Bethel. You stopped and you bought some land in Sukkot and you lived there. Then you came to Shechem and you set up housekeeping in Shechem and thought you could uh, get past everything by building an altar there. You have uh, built, not only had God built his flocks and herds when he was with Laban, but as Jacob has come back, he has continued to see his wealth increase and he still has this vow that he has to fulfill. And so God tells him to go back to Bethel. So even though Jacob had become complacent about God, not completed his mission, God continued to exercise the initiative towards Jacob. And that's an important principle. No matter how we fail God, God is never going to fail us. He is continuously going to exercise the initiative of divine grace in our behalf. He's the one who began the initiative of divine grace In the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned and failed, God is the one who came and looked for them in the garden and explained the consequences of sin and the initial plan of salvation. Down through history, it is always God who initiates grace, even when man is in complete failure. And so, God's grace exercises initiative toward Jacob. Jacob realized his failure and the need to get right with God. And before he could advance, what did he have to do? He had to cleanse himself. He had to deal with the sin in his life, and he had to prepare to worship God. And so this is just another one of those critical passages in Scripture to emphasize the fact that before we can worship God in any way, there has to be spiritual cleansing of sin. This is just another example of 1 John 1, 9. I always find it hard to understand why people have trouble with 1 John 1, 9. And a few years ago I thought, well, maybe the problem is because confession isn't always emphasized. But what is emphasized all the way through Scripture is this concept of cleansing over and over and over again. That's what the issue is. Confession is simply the means to cleansing. Confession is the admission of our sins to God. Now, there are clear verses from Psalm 51 in the Old Testament, 1 John 1, 9 in the New Testament, other passages that emphasize confession. But the one thing that comes across all the way through Scripture is this emphasis on cleansing, 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 cleansing. The believer has to be cleansed of sin to come into the presence of God, and Jacob recognizes this. Genesis 35, 2 And Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves, and change your garments. Notice it's something that's a little more complex than simply admitting his guilt toward God. See, when we confess our sins, we're simply admitting or acknowledging the sin. But what a lot of people think they can do is just, well, I confess my sins, and then five minutes later they commit the same sin again. They just get in this... this, uh, cycle where they're going in and out of fellowship and they think because they keep confessing their sin that they're growing. They're not, they're not, confession doesn't get you growth. Confession simply puts you back into the uh, potential of spiritual growth. And there has to be a realization that, that what I am doing is wrong. It is a sin. It's not just good enough to confess the sin. But at some level, I've got to quit doing the sin if I'm going to advance and go forward. And so that's the principle that we see here. It's not only the principle of purification, but also putting away the foreign gods that are among you. They, they have gotten involved in idolatry. They not only had the teraphim, the, these household idols that Rachel had brought with her, but over the years, all the sons and uh, Dinah had gotten assimilated into Canaanite culture when they uh, plundered the uh, Shechemites. They picked up all the little idols they had, the gold figurines and the silver 
And so they had to get rid of these foreign gods. Later on, Israel is going to be reminded of this in the first commandment of the Ten Commandments. Remember, this is being written by Moses to the Israelites as they're on the verge of going into the land. So this is a reminder to them of the importance of putting aside any idols or false gods that the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. So Jacob says you have to put away the foreign gods. You have to purify yourself and change your garments. Now that word for purify yourself is the Hebrew word tacher, which means to be cleaned, to make clean, to be pure, or to make pure. The term occurs most frequently, occurs 112 times in the Old Testament, and it occurs at least half those times in the book of Leviticus where it's used for ritual cleansing of either things or persons. So it is a crucial word that describes the believer's cleansing so that he can come into the presence of God. So Jacob instructs the families to do three things. First of all, put away the idol. Second, to be purified. This is the same word that's used in Psalm 51, verse 2, when David is confessing his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and conspiracy to murder Uriah the Hittite, he prays to God, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. There's that same verb that's used there. When it's translated into Greek in the Septuagint, they use the Greek word katharizo, which is the verb that we find in 1 John 1.9. Again, in Psalm 51.7, David prays, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. So there is the confession of sin, which is indicated by the fact that they have to put aside the idols. It's not just enough to just confess the sin and then keep the idols in the saddlebags which is what a lot of people do in the Christian life and wonder 10 years later why they haven't gotten anywhere. So confession gets you back in fellowship. It doesn't produce growth. There has to be application of doctrine for there to be forward momentum. And that's indicated by the third thing here, which is a change of clothes. This was a standard practice in the Old Testament to symbolize the spiritual reality of cleansing in preparation before coming to the Lord in worship. They would put on clean clothes, and that would indicate the fact that ceremonial cleansing had taken place so that they could come into the presence of the Lord. So then he says in verse 3, Then let us arise and go up to Bethel. They're going up to Bethel because from where he is in Shechem up to Bethel, you have to go, there's a rise in elevation. And I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. Notice the gratitude here. This is an expression of his grace orientation. He realizes that all that he has and all that he is is a result of God's provision and God's protection in fulfillment of that promise God made at Bethel. So this is his testimony that God has fulfilled what he promised in Genesis 28. Therefore, Jacob has to fulfill the vow that he made in Genesis chapter 28 and construct a place of worship for God, build an altar there in Bethel, and to fulfill his vow of a tithe to God at Bethel. The family responds positively. So they gave Jacob all their foreign gods, which were in their hands, and the earrings, which were in their ears. These earrings, it's not that it's wrong to wear earrings, ladies. It's because these were earrings that were inscribed with the names of the gods and goddesses worshipped by the Canaanites. They were a part of the whole uh, worship system that they had. So they took all of this jewelry, everything that they had, everything that was a result of the plunder, it's all associated with, with some sort of pagan worship, and Jacob hid them. Literally, the word means to hide, but in many contexts, uh, it indicates hiding by burial, which is how it's translated in some versions. Jacob hid or buried them under the terebinth tree. That's a, 
uh, antiquated word for an oak tree, which was by Shechem. Verse 5, And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. This is God's fulfillment of the promise. They're back in fellowship. What's happening? God fulfills his promise. He protects them. And so even though Jacob has these fears that they're going to execute uh, vengeance upon them and the Canaanites and the Perizzites are going to attack them and wipe them out, because Abraham, uh, Jacob is in a position of trusting God. God overrides whatever inclinations there were among the Canaanites and he is going to provide a protection for them. So in this, Jacob learns that God is the true source of strength and security. It's not what he did. It's what God provided. And then in verses 6 and 7, we're told that Jacob came to Luz. That is Bethel. Luz was the old Canaanite name. Bethel is the new name. And every time we hear this city mentioned up to the conquest of, of Joshua, it's always mentioned first by its Canaanite name and then by its new name of Bethel. Verse 7, And he built an altar there, and he called the name of the place El Bethel, because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. So it's the God of Bethel. This is where God has made his vow. So Jacob fulfills his vow, and then we find the first of three deaths mentioned in this chapter. Now this is an unusual uh, statement here. Now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. She was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree, so the name of it was called Alon Bakuth. Now what happens here is that Deborah, who was Rebecca's nurse, so she's got to be between 170 and 180 years old, which is fits the pattern for the age at this time. Abraham lived to be about 170. Isaac lives to be 180. It fits this pattern. Rebecca is dead. We, we never heard about that, probably because Jacob was out of the land and it occurred at that time. Most people think that the reason Deborah was with Jacob now is because she had gone to him when Rebekah died to carry the information to him that his mother had died. And so she had stayed with Jacob, and he had taken care of her, and now she dies, and we're told this. And, of course, Rebekah is probably dead by now as well. And it indicates the passing of the previous generation. And that's what we see in the rest of this chapter is that with these deaths, there is a passing of the generation of Isaac and things are shifting to the next generation. As we go past uh, chapter 35, by the time we get to chapter 37, the focus is on Joseph, the next generation. And so this is bringing to a close what we've studied from the beginning of chapter back in about chapter 24-25 with uh, Isaac. Verse 9, Then God appeared to Jacob again, and in verses 9 through 15, we see the center of this episode where God appears to Jacob again at Bethel and reaffirms his blessing of Jacob, reaffirms the renaming of Jacob by the new name Israel, and reconfirms the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob. This is a focal point of almost everything from Genesis 12 to the end of the book of Genesis is God's covenant with Abraham, the reconfirmation of that many times to Abraham, the reconfirmation of that to Isaac several times, and the reconfirmation of that covenant with Jacob several times. At least 20 times between Genesis 12 and Genesis 50, you have the reaffirmation of this covenant that God promises to give the land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. So God appears to Jacob again. First time was back at Bethel. And now he is appearing to him again and blessing him. This is when he gets the blessing. He got the, uh, remember he, quote, stole the blessing from Esau. 
But God never blessed him back then. The first time God blesses him is at Peniel, and this is a reaffirmation of that, and both times are associated with his new name, Israel. God said to him, verse 10, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. It's a sign of his new status, his new spiritual growth and orientation toward God. Verse 11. I broke this down so you would see the different elements, the different promises of the Abrahamic covenant. Also, God said to him, I am God Almighty. So he identifies himself as El Shaddai. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Where have we seen that before? You can just trace that commandment from the original creation in Genesis 1, reaffirmation after the Noahic covenant, and it's affirmed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and king shall come from your body. This relates to the seed element of the promise. What are the three elements to the Abrahamic covenant? Land, seed, and blessing. So this affirms the seed element of the Abrahamic covenant. Then verse 12 affirms the land part of the promise. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I give to you. And to your descendants after you, I give this land. This is the foundation for Israel's ownership of the land. Actually, God owns the land and decides who lives there and who enjoys its blessing. When Israel is disobedient, they're out of the land. When they're obedient, they're in the land. And what we're seeing today, I believe, is the beginning of the restoration of the land to Israel, which, of course, doesn't culminate until the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation period when a regenerate nation is finally given the full possession of the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse, did I lose verse, verse 13. Then God went up from him in that place where he talked with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. This is a sign of sacrifice to God. It's a free will offering in return for all of the blessings that God has given to him. So we start off with uh, Jacob. He's out of fellowship. He's out of line. He's focused on himself. And then God speaks to him. He is ready to respond. He confesses his sins. There's cleansing. He obeys God, goes to Bethel. The covenant is reaffirmed to him at Bethel. And then we have uh, some family problems that follow uh, that. Jacob called the place, verse 15, Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now, Ephrath is the uh, is one of the sons of the of the twelve sons. He's one of the uh, uh, early uh, fathers uh, in the tribe of Judah, the heads of one of the clans of Judah, and so he was given land in Israel, not far from Jerusalem, about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And so the territory of Ephrath developed a village. That village is called Bethlehem Ephrata, and Micah 5.2 is the birthplace of the Messiah. Messiah would be born in Bethlehem Ephrata, meaning Bethlehem of the territory of Ephrath. And so it was in that same location in Bethlehem where Rachel gives birth to Benjamin, and it is there that Rachel dies. And that is where Rachel is buried. Verse 17, Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni. And Ben-Oni means in Hebrew, son of my sorrow, son of my sorrow. But his father renames him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. And so he takes the sorrow and turns it to blessing that Benjamin will be his favorite because he is the last child of his favorite wife, Jacob. And so she was buried, 
And we're told there that Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Now, the this day is not July of 2006. It is 1406 B.C. when the Jews were getting ready to go into the land. And at that time that Moses wrote this, the pillar over Rachel's grave was still in existence. And today there is indeed a place there in Bethlehem that indicates the uh, location of Rachel's tomb. Now, for those of you who went on the trip, you all remember going by there when we went to Bethlehem? We drove into Bethlehem, and we turned down the street, and, and that uh, tour guide that we had, the, the, the olive wood store owner, was giving us all this history, half of which was right and half of which was who knows where he got it. And we drove down this, this road, and there's this tire store on the right. And we couldn't go to, uh, we couldn't see anything behind the wall behind the tire store, because this is all uh, Palestinian Authority territory now, and Rachel's tomb was located behind the tire store. I think somebody took a picture of the tire store. Anybody get a picture of that tire store? But that was it. So we couldn't see it, just so you know, that's, that's why we didn't see Rachel's, Rachel's tomb, but it's, that's where it's, was located. And then we get more heartache in the life of Jacob. And this is just a reminder that as believers, even when we're obedient to the Lord and the Lord is blessing us, that doesn't mean that we're not going to be uh, go through more tests and trials. It doesn't mean we're not going to uh, have friends and loved ones reject us or do things that hurt us. This is part of living in the cosmic system where there will always be people who fail us, hurt us, attack us, and do things to harm us. And this is the episode beginning in verse uh, 22. I don't have a slide on that. Just a minute, let me turn this off. Verse 22, and it happened when Israel dwelt in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. That's a euphemism for having sexual relations with his father's concubine. This isn't his mother. This is a concubine. And it's not seduction. This isn't done for the purpose of, uh, uh, of lust. This isn't like the rape of Dinah in the previous chapter. Remember, Bilhah by this time is, is quite a bit older, and Reuben takes her and goes in and has sexual intercourse with her as a sign. Uh, this is a sign of rebellion against his father. He is uh, indicating that he wants to take control of everything that his father has. This is the same kind of thing that happens that's described in First Kings, First Kings chapter two, verses. First Kings chapter two, verses thirteen through twenty-five. When you have this episode with uh, uh, Adonijah, and he wanted to have sexual relations with Abishag the Shunammite in order to exert his uh, authority as king and to uh, assault the authority of his father, King David. This was a way in which this was a custom that was done in the ancient world. So that's what lies behind the episode of verses 22 and following. Then we have a listing of the sons of Jacob, the 12 sons of Jacob in verses 23 through 26. And then in verse 27, we're told of the death of Isaac. This is the end of the Toledot of Isaac. Then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre. Now, all this time, since he's come back in the land, at least 10 years since the episode with Laban, he has not seen his father Isaac. And now there is the reconciliation with his father Isaac at Mamreth or Kiriath Arba, which is Hebron. Hebron is about 20 miles south of Bethlehem. This is where Abraham and Isaac had also dwelt. Now we're told the days of Isaac were 180 years. So Isaac breathed his last and died, was gathered to his people, being old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Now, for those of you who are interested in chronology, remember back when we started this whole thing, when uh, Jacob is deceiving Isaac, 
uh, and he's going to, uh, this sends out, es- Esau gets sent out to hunt, and I, uh, Jacob comes in and he puts on the, the, um, animal skins and he cooks them, and Rebecca cooks the meal for Isaac and says that Isaac was old and his eyes were dim. That was at least 50 years earlier. Okay, so you put this in perspective. Remember, Isaac was old and his eyes were dim, and this happens when when Jacob first leaves the land. He leaves the land. He's out of the land for 20 years, and then he spends for at least 20 years, 20 to 25 years, and then he spends another 10 years before he finally comes home. So that was at least 30, 35 years ago that those events occurred. So Isaac has been old and blind uh, for some time, and now he dies, and his sons Esau and Jacob bury him. But the episode ends on the note of Jacob's orientation to God. It ends on the note of God's reaffirmation of his promise, God's faithfulness to Jacob despite the failures of Jacob, despite the flaws of his sons, despite their sins. God is always faithful and he will always fulfill his promises. And even though we live in the devil's world, and even though we have to deal with all kinds of horrible things that go on around us, and even though we have to deal with even family members and close friends who betray us and do all kinds of things to us, God never betrays us, and he is always faithful. And the issue in life for us as believers is our faithfulness to God to continue to walk with him and to trust him and realize those blessings that God has for us both in time and eternity. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to study your word, to be encouraged and strengthened by these things, to be reminded of these principles that you are always faithful, that even when we are faithless, you are always faithful. And even though we have to live with uh, many sorrows and heartaches and difficulties in this life, we know that you are our source of strength, and stability and security, and that we need to be reminded to keep our eyes on you and on your word and not on people or events or circumstances. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.